Welcome to Honest Retail, the weekly podcast that dishes out the truth about the latest news, trends, and blunders from the CPG, consumer, and retail industries. Now, here are your hosts, Cameron McCarthy, Taylor Foxman, and Carlton Fowler. Welcome to this week's episode of Honest Retail. Super excited to be joined as always uh, from Taylor. Uh, unfortunately, CJ is a little sick this week, so he's going to be under, uh, he's not going to be joining us. Uh, but we are joined by Will Nitza from IQ Bar. I've known Will for a couple of years, so super excited to get him on the podcast um, this week. Will, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. For sure. Um, before we start, how about we do a little background on you? Um, if you want to kind of give us the, the pitch on you and then a little bit about IQ Bar as well. Sure. Yeah, I'll give you the, the quick pitch. So I uh, was really into psychology and neuroscience in college. Couldn't figure out a way to work in that in those fields. Uh, went into software. Wasn't a huge fan. Um, became obsessed with nutrition. Had a concept for brain food, packaged brain food. There was no market for it at the time. Ran a Kickstarter to test the idea. Kickstarter worked. Raised a little bit of money on the back end of that and was off to the races. And so we started in mid-2018. So we've been in the marketplace uh, for four years, coming up on four years now. And products have evolved a ton. But basically what, what we are now is a brain and body nutrition platform. And so <clears throat> IQ Bar is, is obviously the, the namesake eponymous product. But we moved into IQ Mix uh, hydration, moved into the hydration world, and then we'll move into um, ancillary categories. Um, all, but everything under that plant based, low sugar, low carb, clean label, grain and body nutrition uh, umbrella. Awesome. Yeah, I saw the, the powder launch and everything like that. So, what retailers can people find you in? Yeah, so the IQ Mix is just online, but we're in quite a few retailers for, for our bars. We're in uh, Sprouts, Wegmans, uh, Sam's Club, Walmart, Rite Aid, Kroger. Um, it, we're in your city somewhere. We're in your city somewhere. All right, cool. Well, everybody, I definitely uh, would say go out and try the product for sure. Uh, excited to see Brain Health starting to, to get on the same kind of plateau as, as all these other health bars as well. So uh, Taylor, too, I also wanted to say before we uh, jumped into like all of our brands that caught our eye this week, congratulations on your on your, um, on your um uh, no Rolling Stones um, report that came out. I thought it was really in depth and you did a really nice job on it. So did you want to kind of touch on that a little bit? Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, sure. I, I, you know, I've been in the, I think you guys all who have listened in for a while know me that um, I've been in the beverage alcohol space since I was in college. I'm definitely not anymore. I'm almost 34. So I started working in spirits when I was 19. And uh, I don't know, it's just it was an experiment that I started. Um, I think we started talking about a cam at the beginning of the year and really have spent the last, you know, few months just fully absorbing this whole like non alcoholic, low alcoholic industry, which is really quickly evolving. And um, so yes, yeah, so I wrote a piece on the wider kind of low alk, no alk movement and, you know, the, uh, the innovation that's happening from a product perspective, you know, retail shops that have popped up, online options, books I've read, apps I've downloaded, my own experience. And so it's been very cool um, and very eye-opening. The other interesting similar comment around this was last week on Twitter, 
uh, just building on kind of the momentum of this trend that we're seeing, um, I had put a note asking the Twitterverse if people would be interested in me aggregating a list of bars and restaurants that have no elk and low elk options. And I am not popular on Twitter, like size-wise of my followers. I mean, I, I hope I'm not not popular. I mean, I don't have that many followers. And yeah, I mean, like 200 plus people engaged with it. Hundreds of people responded. It was really interesting to see that. Um, and that's obviously just a personalized sample size. But again, it speaks to this intrigue and interest in the wider category. So cool to see. Very cool. Well, then diving into the brands that caught our attention this week, you do not have the low alcohol or non-alcoholic <laughs> options. So what was, uh, what was the brand that caught your attention this week? Yeah. So I'm part of uh, the Angel Group, which is started by Adam Sprigg. So it's a CPG focused angel community. Um, and through them, uh, got a company called Osena, Osena, O-S-E-N-A. Um, it is a spiked coconut water and before anyone balks, yes, it is in a can. However, um, these guys are starting, they've, they launched two products originally, just an original coconut flavor and then a pineapple. Um, for someone whose bar cart should be a full alcohol inventory warehouse at this point, I just was so blown away. I thought the flavors of this just transported me to somewhere tropical and it was light and I haven't really tried a lot of products with coconut in it. Needless to say, uh, I was just super impressed. So they're based in New York. They're available, it looks like, in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Mass, soon to be in Wisconsin and Maryland. Um, but anyway, it's a zero, zero sugar spiked coconut water, which again, off you know, first glance, you're like, wait, what? But just was super refreshing. And yeah, I'm going to keep drinking them. I think they're great. Yeah, I think Chris uh, sent me a sample pack uh, like late last year and I tried it and they're, I think they're signing up to, to WeStock this week. So we're excited to, to be working with them. But yeah, the product was, I think it's changed a little bit, but it was, yeah, it was uh, definitely something that I could see like working into my routine with like the summer and just looking for something a little bit different than just say spike seltzer. Yeah, 100%. I have no idea. I'm sure maybe the formulation has changed. I just you know, especially with the, anything, you know, sometimes you're just expecting something cloyingly sweet, uh, even if it's coconut and coconut is sweet, but not overtly sweet. A lot of these drinks just taste really, really sugary. And I was, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. So. Awesome. Well, how about you? Any brands that caught your attention this week? Yeah. I, I live in the, like the, the brain functionality world and have like a particular focus on that, obviously. Um, it's not really like a startup-y brand. They're big now, but um, I've been drinking these zero sugar C4 energy drinks. Uh, with, and it's, C, it's C4 Super Brain, I think is what it's called. And I wasn't, you know, on, on the face of it, it's like an energy drink. It's like not that, not that crazy, right? But I, I just thought like the, I'm really interested in people who are able to take sort of esoteric value propositions and mass marketize them really well and cleanly um, at scale and, and, and be able to reach a really wide demographic in that regard. And obviously like, the brain is a weird one. It's like esoteric and how do you mass marketize that? And, um, but there's obviously like the tie-in of energy drinks, like it jacks you up, right? Like you brain literally works better when you 
pump it full of caffeine. Um, but they use this compound called um, called Cognizant, which is a citical, it's the trademark for acetylcholine, which is the actual like functional compound. And there's a whole host of things for your brain. But anyway, like it, it would be very easy to make that like not approachable and, es and overly esoteric and arcane and, and like, why am I buying this at a 7-Eleven? But it's just like really well done in, in terms of the subtleness of the branding around it. And such that like, if I just wanted an energy drink, I'd be happy to buy it. And then also if I like nerded out more on functionality, I'd also want to buy it. So it, it just, I don't know, it was done well and the mango flavor is good. And so yeah, that's, that's my, my one of the week. Do you find that like customers, do they, do they find it hard to measure results of like brain related foods versus like, Hey, I'm taking in protein. I'm getting bigger. Is it like, or is it just like, I'm feeling a placebo effect. Like initially, how do I weigh that versus like actual results? Like, is it hard for like an end consumer to actually be like, yeah, this, this changed my daily habits. Here's why. Yeah. I, I, this is like a, this is like a hobby horse of mine that I just found it really fascinating. Like I, I categorize um, products in terms of like feedback loops. So like there's a positive feedback loop, right. Which is like drugs. Like, so, so caffeine's a drugs. Starbucks is like the biggest drug dealer in America. That's why it's so freaking successful. Right. It's a positive feedback loop. Like you feel euphoric when you consume caffeine. That's why Red Bull has enough money to buy sports teams and Starbucks is giant. Right. That's a positive feedback loop. Then there's, which is obvious, right? And then there's no feedback loop, right? Which is just like you're eating a cracker. And then there's the absence. And then there's a bad feedback loop, which is like you eat a pizza and you feel terrible. And then there's the absence of a negative feedback loop, which is like the place we live in, which is basically like you would have consumed something that made you feel bad. Instead, you consume something that doesn't make you feel bad and like maintain energy levels and yada, yada, right? And so in terms of like, what's the best? Like the best is a positive feedback loop because you consume something, you feel it efficaciously, like there's a physiological feedback loop and then you want it the next time. And the second best is the absence of a negative feedback loop, which would be like, you consume a athletic brewing co-drink and you don't feel like shit the next day. Right. That's the absence of a negative feedback loop. And that's also good, not as good, but but also good. So we live in more of that world. Hydration's a similar one, right? Like you're not like you don't drink it something like a Gatorade and you're like, whoa, I'm hydrated. Like it's just you don't feel bad. So it's the absence of a negative. Yeah, super interesting. Like how you're thinking about that. Um, very cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, Taylor, you're you're a, you're a big energy drink person. Have you tried the C4s ever, or you stick with your Celsiuses? See, that's the thing. Like, I'm not an energy person. I'm oh, I thought it was because of the Celsius. I'm, a, oh, you're I'm a Celsius just a person. Celsius person. <laughs> I mean, I used to back in the day drink. Uh, oh God, I didn't. I was never uh, like a Red Buller. My husband apparently had like a Red Bull fridge in his home see it's like you meet people at different times of their life that was when he like was a dj in germany um but no uh kidding anyway um no i haven't really tried these i this one i haven't i've definitely seen this one before um i think this is one our friend mark gallo likes a lot the c4 energy one um i need to try it i haven't tried it 
super yeah. interesting. I'll be honest. I'm always like super judgy of people because I go to the gym like early. It's like 5 a.m. and I'll see people like cracking open like a C4 and I'm like, how do you do that? But now it's like that I see that it's a little bit more to then just like kind of a traditional energy drink. Maybe I won't be as judgy for those people like cracking those up early. <laughs> so um, I'll have to take a look at the ingredients and check it out. But yeah, I see that. I mean, the distribution for that product is awesome. And, and you're right. Mark does hype up that brand quite a bit. Yeah. I thought that was the same. I was trying to put two and two together. I'm like, that's definitely a brand that he also, he's pretty picky as well. So. Very cool. Um, for me, um, it, it's going to be like a pretty niche brand this, uh, this week. I, I went up to um, every single like summer I do a wine pickup at this like winery that's up by me. It's called Wild Arc Farms. So I just wanted to give them some, some pub on this episode. They actually like do really streamlined, like what would seem like mainstream awesome products for like a local winery and they're starting to grow, but they have this product called like Paquette, which is essentially like when you make wine, you then just do the process again, but you do it through the grapes that have already like already ran through one process. So you get like this really light kind of like fermented kombucha kind of like really like funky beverage, which is awesome. Um, and the packaging's like, you wouldn't think like, oh, this is like a Hudson Valley little farm that's doing it. Like the packaging's so slick. So um, I posted some pictures on my Twitter yesterday. I was really like excited by just like the look and feel of the brand. So I'm excited that they're starting to expand out. But if I could urge anyone to, to go support Wild Arc Farms and, and try Paquette if you've ever, if you've never had it before, uh, it's definitely good for um, all the wine nerds out there as I sound like one right now. So, um, but, but that is a negative feedback loop if you drink too many so we'll keep it at that. <laughs> well it's a positive um, <laughs> feedback loop at the upfront. yeah no no it is very positive for sure and it's it's like um it's only like seven percent because they've are it's running through the second time so it's it's pretty light beverage so uh it's a good option for people for sure um cool so let's jump into some of the topics um i know we've talked about this topic a few times um, but they continue to come up in the news and that's GoPuff. Um, and I think the reason why we continue to bring it up and we've talked about this like a little bit, it's like every single time I log into LinkedIn, it seems like there's another food brand promoting that they just got into GoPuff. And a lot of brands are treating it as like a traditional retailer. And I think they're getting really excited about the distribution, but there's like a lot going on behind the scenes um, with this company there. It's just continuing to lose cash. They're continuing to spend and their CAC for new customers is extremely high. I think where this new article came out and we'll link to it in the bio uh, really shedded some light on maybe just like the, the team there and the executive team might just not be the team that actually can get them um, over the hump here. I think the growth is kind of pretty spectacular, obviously billion dollar plus just bought on the app itself. But I just feel like we've seen a lot of these players come in. Joker already went out of business, a few of these others. And so I think it's interesting to talk about because there's so many brands and most of our audience is CPG brands that are excited about opening up GoPuff. But I think if you put a lot of your eggs in, in this basket where this is a really tumultuous company, like it could be gone tomorrow as well as it could go to, you know, the moon tomorrow as well. So it's just something to continue to watch out. Um, Taylor, I know you were the one that sent over this article. Um, so we'd love to have you kind of touch on it and see if there was anything new that this kind of shed a light on for you. Uh, and then I know we have kind of one other topic around GoPuff to, to also uh, dive into. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see where this all goes. I mean, I think we're all saying the same thing. Like, this isn't the first time that we've seen a company like this go through what they're 
going through. I guess when the original news came out and uh, we're talking about a, a story, guys, in the or viewers, listeners, whatever, um, that, that was originally leaked. I just want to give the, this outlet credit through a company called the a publication called The Information. I don't know. They continue to kind of do these super in-depth stories. Um, yeah, I mean, when it first came out, I think it was pretty shocking. Like, you know, you have this company that is in hyper growth mode and who knew, right, that they would need to cut <clears throat> notable amount of their workforce and changes in leadership. Again, not the first time we've heard this, but just for GoPuff, it was kind of a huge shock at the time. And and this, the most recent kind of story slash expose that we've seen is just about them continuing to like bleed cash and, you know, um, lose executives and put freezes in place. And so I think, again, I don't think this is like that newsworthy at this point. I think it's obviously something that we're going to continue to talk about because of how notable the company is. And like you said, Cam, other companies have kind of fallen to the wayside that have tried to do some similar types of models. I think it's just, uh, it'll, I think this is like, I don't know if you both agree, but I think this is a pretty crucial time for their business. Like either I think they're going to figure this out and come out on top or they may fall, uh, which would be really surprising given how much traction they've had so far. For sure. Well, how do you kind of view companies like this? I, I guess, you know, I want to get your take on the story one and then two, like as a CPG brand owner, how do you view accounts like this? Like, how do you view growth through this? Obviously you listed some great accounts like Wegmans and things like that. Um, obviously growing through more traditional retail is definitely more stable, but how do you view accounts like this? And then how did you kind of view the story as well? I mean, yeah, like there's like two hats here. Like, what do I just think of the story and the macro situation at hand? And, and then, yeah, as a brand, I mean, as a brand, uh, like we're, <laughs> we're in a remarkably like simple business. Like if a retailer will, will buy your stuff and the terms are good and there's no big risk of some really bad outcome happening, um, and a bad outcome could be like some big chargeback. It could be like, we lose this retailer and we otherwise wouldn't have if we had spent more time um, nurturing it or whatever. There's like a series of three, four bad outcomes. But if those aren't on the horizon, then work with the retailer. Like uh, they're good in the sense that they help you get revenue and reach new customers. Um, it, it hasn't we, are, we sell through GoPuff and I think it's quite quite small for, for us, like super small relative to, to all those retailers. And so I guess you could make an argument that like, why bother at all? Like the ratio of time invested to revenue spit out is not there. Uh, my, my macro like perspective on it is, is that it's not all that, it's like very unsurprising. Um, they, they were, I, I listened to this guy, that guy Raphael or whatever his name is um, on a This Week in Startups podcast and um he was sort of like painting it as uh, like charismatic guy like great story they started it in like their dorm room i think and awesome story it was sort of painting it as like we're the one that like we have the answer like all these other guys are going out of business like the model is broken but like for whatever reason we have the answer and then it's sort of like you're peeling back the, the onion and it's like is it is it just a viable model period end of story in 2022? It, it very well might have been in 2021, but like, obviously like times are dramatically different <laughs> even than they were in like November. So 
um, it, 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 it's like that same looming question over Uber and Lyft. Is the model like even in and of itself viable? Like, should people get things in 15 minutes? Like, just because someone funded it doesn't mean the model should have ever existed, right? And why are they, why are they different? And like, no one's been able to provide like tangible evidence for why they would, like the laws of physics, they can't defy the laws of physics at some point. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think we, we've talked like uh, on an early episode about like just the use case for this, right? And when you're, when you're delivering on price or you're delivering on time and it's like, it's pretty much a race to the bottom with either of those two. And so it's just, it's a really tough business to get the unit economics to actually work for you. It's also just like, should we, it's, you know, it's like the, you know, the, the, the famous Jurassic Park quotes, like we were so worried about if we could build it, we didn't know if we should. And it's like, it's it just, I just don't know if it's a necessity for it, especially with Amazon who has so many different resources, not necessarily getting in this space, understanding that next day has been good enough and they still have the unit economics to support that. So I think it's, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, where that goes for sure. And, and the problem is it, what I find so crazy about, I mean, I, obviously I'm preaching from the choir. This is not an original thought, but like if you build a profitable business, it doesn't matter what the macroeconomic environment is, but th there really are just so many businesses that were predicated on a 2021 environment that literally don't make sense. Like it, it, it's so untenable. It's not even funny in 2022. Um, and it's, it's just crazy how sharp the change has been and how quick, like, like it's a matter of weeks that, that things like this are getting scrutinized. Yeah. And I mean, the amount of that they're raising and the burn associated with it and the fact that it's like this pressing of an issue, it's definitely, um, it's definitely pretty crazy to see, which is sad because they, they actually brought in a decent amount of talent. Um, and I like kind of their strategy with, you know, the next thing we're talking about where they did launch a, their own pizza brand inside of it called the mean, uh, I believe the mean tomato, which actually the packaging um, was awesome. I thought uh, I can't speak to the product cause I haven't tried it, but I think like utilizing like ghost kitchens in a creative way, actually being able to create your own product, um, thinking about solving problems in innovative ways is super helpful. The same way like DoorDash now, like if you order something through DoorDash, they'll then refer you to something that's also nearby. So now the driver's making two pickups for you versus just one. So I think DoorDash is still going to always be the leader in this space. I think like the DoorDash and how they're starting to work with CPG is going to continue to like have way more of a head start. Um, but was just kind of, we can also just touch really quickly on your guys' thought on, on the mean tomato and, and just thinking through creative strategies of actually them developing their own product. And I think there was also rumors of them developing their own private label brand as well. So, Will, why don't we, we start with you and then Taylor, we'll, we'll kind of end with you and, and wrap up this topic. I think it's a good idea. I, I, I haven't tried the product either. I, I, like, it's a good idea, obviously, because everyone's doing it. <laughs> like, everyone's doing private label. Um, and when enough smart things, people, when enough smart people do the same thing, it, it's probably a good idea. So it, from a unit economic standpoint, like they built a UPS more or less or some version of it. Right. And so once you build that distribution, like the obvious next question is how do I plug in the highest margin thing that I can push through that distribution, uh, system, which is private label. So I, I think it's. And also you have developed a brand unto yourself. Let, 
Like if you're a Thrive Market, you have a brand unto yourself. If you're Whole Foods, like 365 is a, a reflection of Whole Foods' brand, right? So it's, if you have good brand equity and you have the rails, like why wouldn't you push a higher margin product through it? So um, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I think we'll see how it pans out. Taylor, how about you? I mean, I, I like it. I think I, what I had read was I like the fact that they're basing these kind of ideas off of data and insights. I always think that's important. You know, people want bold flavors. I think it's fun. I don't think they're going to keep the pizza forever on their menu, but I think it's a good idea. I agree. Um, and, you know, leveraging and partnering with brands that already have some of them in different capacities, you know, big brand loyal loyalty like Truff and Mike's Hot Honey is cool. So I, yeah, I haven't tried it yet. Um, think it sounds like a good idea. And I like that they're leveraging insights and data to drive that strategy, as well as partnering with brands that are obviously really relevant at the moment that people are. But uh, one, yeah, one thought I had, yeah, one thought I had is like, to, I totally agree, Taylor, on like the data thing. It's like, what, what if they find like everyone's just buying razors or whatever? And, and then you look at a company like, <laughs> like Dollar Shave Club, right? And it's like, why do they struggle? Eventually they become commoditized and it's too expensive. Their CAC is too high to their LTV and yada, yada. But if GoPuff already has all these people, all these consumers plugged in and they're controlling for the CAC and they can just make a private label, right. fill in the blank, fill in the blank thing that the data points to. Um, I mean... I would buy cheaper razors from GoPuff. So it's like a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of that company that was, I want to say brandable, but I don't think that was the name of it, but that brandless? just made all brandless. Yeah. It's like brandless. if brandless just had a delivery component, like, is that just what they're going to? And like, does that make sense? Right. So it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. Awesome. Yeah, well, they, they, they got, they, didn't they restart? Didn't they, they, they did restart. They, they went out of business, they closed down, but then I think they got uh, purchased again, which we're actually going to talk about later, a little bit later. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's super interesting. And, and I thought the packaging and everything was great. It's just, they just did way too much. I mean, they had like hundreds of SKUs right out of the gate and it's like, why don't we hone in and focus on the ones where the unit economics actually makes sense. And, and that's kind of where I think with like some of these companies, like, GoPuff might just be worried about charging their customers what they actually need to charge. And so, mm -hmm. yes, you might lose some of those initial customers, but you're essentially giving away product for free. So like, great, you have a billion dollars like of revenue going through your app, but you're losing substantial amount of dollars because you're just buying so many customers. And then on top of buying those customers, you're then giving away product through incentives. So that, that's just not going to end well, but we'll, we'll see where it goes. Let's move to a more positive uh, conversation. We usually rail on big CPG here, uh, usually for their lack of innovation. Uh, but I really love this article uh, that we found on Food Dive last week. Um, it talked about the team at Kraft Heinz um, and the marketing team there, specifically Jess Voltaggio. Um, and her work really taking classic iconic craft brands and renewing them in really fun ways for marketing campaigns. So I think a lot of us saw the Kraft macaroni and cheese Van Leeuwen ice cream um, that came out a few months ago. She was the one behind that. Uh, they also just did a Grey Poupon wine, which I'd be like I would be first in line to try that out. It's like two of my favorite things. I'm all I'm all for huh. that. Uh, and then they did a Oscar Mayer baloney face mask, right? Which sounds like super out there, but the campaigns really resonated. And I think the cool thing is is they're partnering with like 
the baloney like face masks were like one of like the best face mask companies in North Korea, like, or not North Korea, geez, South Korea. And then the, um, the ice cream brands was Van Leeuwen, right? Which we all know is like a really high end ice cream brand. So they're really partnering with these really high end manufacturers to take their classic products and kind of rethink them. And that's really re-engaging their customer base. And I don't think that these large companies are doing enough with their IP and really thinking through some of these iconic brands that they have. And Kraft has had a really tough, tough decade. I mean, if you look at the stock price, if you look at their performance, they probably have been hurt as much as any large CPG company. So for them to really think outside of the box has been really refreshing to see because they do have so many great brands. Um, but let, I wanted to get your kind of thoughts on this as well. Taylor, let's kind of start with you. Are you buying these products, one? Uh, and then two, how do you think about a big company um, kind of thinking through a more fun, creative startup type of lens? <laughs> I am definitely not buying the grapefruit plum line. <laughs> I, w- I did want to try the ice cream last year, uh, the face masks. That, that's a no-go for me. Um, but I do, I do think... Uh, look, I, I like the general idea. Um, <clears throat> two takeaways that I thought were interesting about the story. One was, to no one's surprise, but still of note, is um, those efforts are obviously working super well on social. Um, it looked like they said they had about 300% boost of engagement. At the end of the day, like, how do you, similar to what you were saying, Cam, like, what are the ways in which you can differentiate, right? Like leveraging synergistic partners or brands that you work with already, or, you know, making programs that are visually appealing and Instagrammable and engage, you know, easy to engage with. So I give them, again, you know, maybe it's just like my old background in PR, like I'm like looking at these things and I'm like, oh God, like macaroni ice cream and the mustard wine, like, no, no, thank you. But I, I do give them credit for thinking, like you said, like thinking out of the box and working with these companies and coming up with things that are mediable and newsworthy and, you know, good on social. So kudos to them. And the other part I thought was super cool is that it looks like they're building out their internal team. They said, I think they've hired around 150 people to serve as like an in-house creative agency, which, which is really interesting. I got like, um, Nick, uh, Nick Sharma, I believe is his name. I know, I know everyone like follows this guy, but I just got his newsletters, um, his weekly newsletter, which comes, I believe on Sundays and, uh, the title of this weekly newsletter, which was the first one that I've received was five reasons to hire internally versus using an agency. And that just resonated with me because I think some of these companies are scaling up internally. Like they said, they are, um, I guess under her, supervision and guidance and counsel. But anyway, thought I'd kind of make a relevant parallel there because it looks like versus bringing in a lot of these times when you see these types of announcements, they always link to, we brought in this advertising agency and this marketing company and this, they're like, we can do this, we can do this well. So versus outsource it, let's just continue to build the infrastructure internally to grow these types of creative capabilities, which I think is unique. Yeah, I don't think you see a lot of bigger companies take chances like this unless it's being pushed by like an external marketing company. So it's exciting to see them kind of do that internally themselves. Um, it'll be interesting to see like, does that actually generate a lift in the product um, long term? And is there a tailwind after these types of events? Um, Will, how about you? Are you uh, are you run, running out to the store for a bottle of uh, Dijon mustard wine anytime soon? Well, I'll try anything once. <laughs> uh, am I like pumped about it? No, but I... I, I 
I completely agree with everything Taylor said. Like that, these bit, like the bind you're always in as a big CPG is you have a mothership and you don't want to threaten the mothership, right? You have something to lose. Like that's the fundamental difference with the startup. You have either nothing to lose or something not that big to lose. And so you can just take way more risks and yada, yada, right? But if you're Kraft Heinz, you have a lot to lose. So how do you innovate, like drive more eyeballs, et cetera, without threatening the mothership? And, and this is just like a smart way to do it, I think. It's like, yeah, it's media worthy. Whether or not they sell one bottle of this stuff, it makes you- Yeah, it gives, it's not even the point. Yeah. yeah, it's not the point at all. Um, yeah. And by the way, I'm sure they will sell all the bottles of them. Right? There's <laughs> enough people who like novelty that they will, but that'll be de minimis relative to the, the brand value, incremental brand value achieved for the mothership, which is the standard mac and cheese, like, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they don't have that many tools available to them. And this is like a good one. It reminds me of the April Fool's kind of thing where everyone does like a, a crossover thing that doesn't really make sense but it's a close enough to making sense that it's compelling. It's like, yeah, it's inherently funny to think about two things you wouldn't otherwise put together. Um, it's always going to work, or, or at least it's always going to grab attention. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think too, it's also interesting to think, think through like who has the purchasing power now, like Taylor, you mentioned, you know, you're 34, I'm 33. Like, we fall right into that. Like we grew up with these brands, like being in our kitchens, like, but we might've strayed from them over the last decade, um, like leaning towards newer brands or innovative brands or disruptive brands since we're in that industry. And now, you know, coming back to these brands are like, oh yeah, these were mainstays. I want to come back to it. I have that nostalgia for it, but looking at them under new lenses is a really kind of cool concept. And I think they're marrying the nostalgia with kind of like the campiness and the funness of this campaign really well. Um, and yeah, I mean, big shout out to Jess for craft uh, for, for doing this. And I'm pretty excited to see what they'll be doing in the future. Although I think she just moved to another department. So hopefully they don't, they don't hamper like the creativity here, but um, I'm, I'm excited to see what they have next. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Let's just be clear. I said I am turning 34. Thank <laughs> Sorry. Thank you very much. I am also, I am still, we're, we're both in the 33 boat. There we go. I've, yeah, July 1st. I am. All right. Okay. But no, I agree. I agree. She'd be great to have on. We should try to make that happen. Uh, I did send her a message this morning, so we'll see if she gets back to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool. Well, keeping on the theme from earlier, we'll talk a, another platform here. Um, one that we've chatted, chatted about before, but Instacart. Um, recently filed for their IPO confidentially. Um, I think it's an interesting time. Obviously, um, I don't know if we're in a complete bear market right now, but it has been a, a pretty prevalent downturn here. Um, Instacart as well has had a pretty hardcore downturn. They've slashed their valuation by almost 40% since March. Um, and so it's definitely taken a hit. I think like so many companies, whether you're a CPG company or a tech company, you took hits over the last year, year and a half because you had that kind of covid uh, bump and the Instacart saw that COVID bump probably more than any other company. So I think for them, it's just figuring out what that new baseline is. Um, the one thing I did read about is their new offering, which is basically, uh, it's called Carrot Warehouses, where they have a tech platform that just helps any size grocer get set up with 15-minute delivery themselves. So it's kind of like they've set up uh, an Instacart SaaS platform inside of their company, which I think is a really cool product. I think from that fulfillment service, you also get a ton of insights and data. 
Um, so I think that's a great product to go out and sell to every single grocery store that's out there, not just the, these big companies that are using Instacart. It's a great new revenue stream for them. So I'm excited to see how um, they grow. I, I you know, wish them all the luck with the IPO. I've been pretty transparent that like the one thing that ruins my grocery experience is Instacart shoppers because like you're constantly just like in the grocery store with them competing for product. And it's like, you're no longer asking for help from people that are work at Whole Foods or somewhere else. You're now just in the aisle with Instacart shoppers. So I would like to see at some point Instacart just team up and create their own warehouses so that that service is outside of the store and not inside of the store anymore. Um, but Will, would love to get your thoughts on this. And, and are you an Instacart user yourself? No, I'm not. Uh... <laughs> No, we, we do sell on Instacart. We do sell on Instacart and it's great. It's a killer channel. And I think if you really like put the time into it, it's a young enough channel to where you can like optimize their search. And, you know, it's a search engine uh, to a degree and you can be smart about ads and driving real volume through through it. So <clears throat> I'm bullish on it from, from all those standpoints. I know a zillion people are users of it. So I, I definitely pay attention to it. I don't use it personally. I'm, I'm like you, like I like going to the store and there's sort of a uh, serendipitous quality to like finding random stuff there in addition to getting the staples that, that you would otherwise get. Um, I think it's an absolutely horrific time to IPO, obviously, as a tech company of a COVID stock that just got whacked um so i i hope their numbers are super good otherwise i'm pretty bearish on on them as a stock but um yeah i don't know time, time will tell it's like human behavior has been jerked around in so many ways in the last couple of years that it's like very hard to predict um like how people are going to be like there is this this rush back into stores now um what will that look like? Is that reactionary? Will it have staying power? Like it's it, all these things are um, unknowns. You, you know, obviously everyone's, and it's directly relevant to e-com, right? Because it is to a degree zero sum, right? Like <laughs> other people are buying in the store. It's not totally zero sum, but it's partially zero sum. So you know, the e-com people, myself included, and anyone in Omnichannel has to be watching this like a hawk too. Um, but yeah, I agree. I guess long story short, I agree with you. It'd be nice if it was in a fulfillment center separate to it. Um, and but I'm I'm bearish on the on the stock at least. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it pans out. Taylor, how about you? Yeah, my whole life is just one constant push of an Instacart, like everything <laughs> in my life. Um, no, I like I like, you know, I, I wish I had more time. I'm not saying you guys do. I just like. I like the exploratory nature of, of shopping in a store. I just feel like every time I try to do it, I just, something comes in the way at this point. Um, but I, I still, I still love going into a store, um, getting products. So I, I would say like the breakdown of how I shop is like embarrassingly like 80, 20, like everything I order is on Instacart. I think they're really good. Um, yeah, I agree. It's a really crappy time to, to IPO business, but I, I, I really like, um, I really like what they do. Um, you know, I, and I, I like the, the variety too. Like, you know, if I need to use Petco, 
to get pet products. And then the next day I need to get turkey. And I don't know. I just like how they do things. I think they're pretty fast, efficient. I love their text platform. Um, the people that do the shopping are always so nice. They always send me nice photos. But I agree, like those people in the store drive me nuts. So I, I think they need to figure out a better system. I, I, they drive me nuts. So from a consumer using the app, it's great, but I can totally understand a people that want to just generally explore a traditional, you know, uh, uh, convenient, you know, uh, grocery store. And then also I think that they need to work on being able to get those people just their own areas to shop because it's like quite a deterrent for people that go into a lot of these stores. Awesome. Yeah, no, I've, I've used it a few times. You know, it's also different, right? I think both of you are in the city, like I'm in the suburbs. So it's like, it's like a little bit less useful for me just because it's like, I got a store so near to me, but it'll be interesting to see how um, the IPO pan pans out. And uh, I'm excited to see how this new tech platform that they're pushing out works as well. Because to me, if I was an investor, that's, that's what I would be getting the most excited about for sure. Um, all right, let's touch on our last uh, topic here. We've kind of went like tech platform, big company, tech platform, big companies. So um, this one is talking about how there's been a recent surge in a lot of large companies divesting in brands that they acquired over the last 10, 20 years. I think we look at the big companies like a Crafts, like a uh, Nestle, and we think that most of their growth comes through M&A. And that's really been um, the story over the last decade. And I think as smaller brands have taken over a large sum of the market cap um, over the last few years, we've seen that really the only way that these large companies can compete is through M&A, which is great because that means, you know, founders like Will have a really nice outcome, you know, in, in future years. But what's been really interesting to see is that now these large companies are starting to divest um, from some of their investments. So, Companies like Crave, Funfetti, Haagen-Dazs have now been bought back, sometimes even by the original owner. Um, you know, Crave was bought back, uh, I believe, last year or the year before by John Sebastiani um, and the team over there at Sonoma Brands. Obviously, John's kind of like the one of the godfathers of, of the natural food and beverage space. Um, and they've already, you know, really given the brand another facelift. They've continued to grow sales. And all these brands are kind of thriving now in different hands. So I think it just kind of lends itself to big CPG kind of just looks at like, how do we cut margins? How do we grow distribution? And not necessarily how do we continue to nurture the brand for the next 10, 20 years to really continue to grow our pie? And I don't think they're going to ever really approach it that way. So, you know, as a founder, when you do sell your company, you kind of are potentially saying goodbye to some of that growth. I don't ever, you know, there's there's very few companies where the growth has continued and substantially increased. So I like, I kind of liked this theme um, and that's why I wanted to bring it up. But Will, let's start with you. You know, obviously as the CPG um, founder, you know, kind of how do you view these large M&A deals? Like, how do you view uh, this article about companies uh, divesting and, and sometimes the original founder coming back in and, and taking over the reins and growing the brand again? I think it's awesome. The, the last piece, the Zico, uh, Zico guy, the uh, coconut water guy did the exact same thing with Pepsi. Um, I think he's at power plant ventures, but um, I think that's awesome. I mean, that's a baller move to, to sell and then buy it back and then probably resell. Yeah, like just the double dip. Yeah. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you do that? You're just running back the same strategy in the new era. So I think that's killer. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of the, 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 it's like the classic thing of the dynamic where companies used to acquire companies and integrate them. And then they realized that was a bad idea. And so like 2.0 was they bought them and then let them operate as a standalone unit. 
Um, but of course, the devil's in the details. Like, how much leash did you give that company? Like, I think honestly, like if I'm a big CPG company, I buy the company. I look at the obvious synergies, which yeah. mostly are like, mostly are like materials buying and, and, and like maybe some like back office stuff. And that is it. Like, that is it. Like leave the team, highly incentivize the team to continue the trajectory and, and slash cogs. Like that's it. Um, and the company has to stand alone on its own. Um, I, I think, I think these companies are going to get a lot less acquisitive of, you know, quote unquote growth brands, you know, high burn fast growth brands. Cause there's only so much that you can cut cogs, right? You can't, you can't make a miracle out of a company, but, um, so I still think like that is a good and maybe the only strategy for, for, for growth is inorganic acquisition. Um, but again, the devil's always in the details and like, don't mess with a good thing, just reduce the cost structure. And, and like Hershey's, a chocolate company buying a meat jerky company, like I'm not all that surprised that didn't work out. Um, th there's a lot of just sort of head scratchers um, and, and then like a predictable result at the end. So yeah. Yeah. And I think most, I mean, most CPG companies get acquired for under hundred million. Like it's, it's really tough to get over that hundred million acquisition point for CPG. And it's usually those bigger, those craft, those Nestle's, those Hershey's that are doing those acquisitions. And I think that's where you usually see some of the fumbling in kind of the, the raw strategy where some of the smaller acquisitions where maybe it's, you know, a smaller portfolio of companies, maybe it's even a co-packer buying a brand. Sometimes they will leave the team alone. They will incentivize them. And that's where I've seen in the past, like tends to be the best relationship. But I think it's interesting to see, you know, these companies get bought back and, and continue to grow because it shows like there was growth to be had there for these brands. And it wasn't just, you know, kind of all squeezed once they sold. I always like the, the the framework I have is we had this, I used to sell software and the model we operated under with decision makers and our potential clients is the, will this get me fired test? That's how decision makers operate. They don't operate on at big companies. They don't operate on what's the like most creative, smart, high risk, but also high reward way I can grow this business incrementally. It's what are the odds this will get me fired if it doesn't work? And just that simple framework, I think, ruins a lot of companies that get acquired um, because no one wants to do the thing that might get them fired if it doesn't work out. Yeah, I mean, it's all about reducing risk. I mean, we, we, we see that all the time with CPG brands. Like when CPG brands go and pitch buyers and they're like, this is my great product. Here's my great story. This is why we're different than everybody. It's like the buyer doesn't care about this. The buyer doesn't want to get fired. And so it's like, how are you performing in that category? What is like your strategy for it to increase velocity? Like talk to the buyer and like, what's going to keep their job. And so we see that like in all these conversations. So yeah, I, I, I love that framework and approaching it that way. Um, and I think a lot of brands would be better served kind of thinking that way, just in their day-to-day -day approach with, with buyers, not even for, you know, M&A deals and things like that. Um, Taylor, how about you? I don't have much to add. I just think I agree. It's badass. <laughs> for, I mean, a lot of times I agree. Like there is this kind of under, like kind of overarching, like, you know, notion that you need to change so much and get rid of the people involved or move them out or shift gears. And 
I don't know if that's always the right decision. I mean, sometimes it is. Um, and, you know, CJ could speak to this probably more eloquently than we can. But um, at the end of the day, I mean, they, they have a huge value add, right? And so I think like when they make these big changes, I, I get why the decisions are made to sometimes shift leadership or take people out. But at, ultimately, I mean, a lot of these people know the brands best. And so I think, yeah, I think that's a really cool move. But also who's going to, like, how do you create, I, there's something that maybe there's just no way around it, which is like, what is the magic of like a brand? It's like often like crazy people who work a hundred hours a week, trying to think of every possible way to get an edge and do something creative. And, and then that person gets paid out. Right. And then they're like, Whoa, okay. It's kind of dumb for me to work, continue working hundred hour weeks. Right. So that just goes away. And then is that person the right person? And let's say they just peace out after two years. Well, how the hell do you replace that dynamic, like that X factor? You, you can't. And so it's like, can you kind of cobble together an analog to it via like four people instead of one? And it's just, it's very, very, very hard to like replace that magic. Um, and so... I don't, I don't have the answer, but maybe it's keep that same person and then just highly incentivize them to keep going. No, I don't know. Yeah, I, I almost think a large CPG would avoid the problem altogether if they made acquisitions a lot earlier, if they started looking at companies like sub $20 million in revenue, and they're just like, all this company needs is to pump through our revenue, or th through our distribution cycles, and, and we'll lower co the cogs like we spoke about. And then they'd be better served to like really get that brand to $100 million, $150 million in revenue, because that's their sweet spot. But I think once it's like, okay, well, we've got a really solid ACV, the brand's in a good spot, and like the secret sauce is the brand in that team, then yeah, that's really hard to replicate or even go beyond that and grow that. So, but the problem is, is when we're talking from the framework of like, will this get me fired? Making acquisitions of a, of a smaller kind will most likely get you fired yeah, much quicker. Yeah. So it's it's a difficult paradigm. I actually like that, I, that, like that framework. Give them a guaranteed sale. And uh, by the way, a lot of people would take that. So like, here we're going to give you we're going to give you like enough money where you don't have to like worry about your rent and like you know right and, right and then and then if you can grow it to this level we will guarantee this payout and like everyone will win it it's an interesting model that yeah i don't, I don't mm. know if i've seen that hmm. that could be cool i mean that way you know it's not like they feel like they're just kind of floating through all next steps they have sweat in the game so yeah, that yeah. Could be really it'd be interesting yeah, to see. Interesting. I, I haven't seen it how like any of the incubators or accelerators are, are frames. Like I obviously think like they're probably taking a percentage for like X amount of dollars or X amount of personal capital that they're putting in. Um, but that can probably be like the only closest thing that I would see. And maybe you have like a inline track to get acquired by that company as well. But yeah, um, it's, it's an interesting framework to think through for sure. But uh, I know we're up against the hour. Will, really appreciated your time. Um, what's, can you kind of walk through like the website uh, for, for your product and then also like where people can find you if they have questions or want to learn more about your product or you? Sure. Yeah. Our website's eatiqbar.com. Uh, our social media, all, all the social platforms are at Eat IQ Bar. Um, what else? You can email me at will at eatiqbar.com. And I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. It's not really active on Twitter, sort of here and there. Uh, and that's about it. Cool. 
All right. Well, I appreciate it. Taylor, it was great seeing you. And, and CJ, if you're listening, feel better. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll see everybody uh, next week.